Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Marini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. At least 78 people died and hundreds more could still be missing at sea after a boat carrying migrants from Libya to Italy capsized in international waters southwest of Greece early on Wednesday. This is one of Europe's worst migrant disasters and is just the latest case of smugglers packing vessels full of desperate people willing to risk their lives to reach continental Europe. Ageliki Dimitriadi, a non-resident fellow at the Global Public Policy Institute and the head of the Migration Policy Unit at the ENA Institute for Alternative Policies, joins me to look at the scope of this tragedy, break down the broader picture when it comes to migration and the smuggling of people in the Mediterranean, and explore how European countries are addressing this challenge. Ageliki, it's great to have you back on The Greek Current. It's nice to be back. Ageliki, a boat carrying migrants from Libya to Italy capsized and sank on Wednesday off the Greek coast. And the eyes of the world have turned once again to Greece. What's the scope of this tragedy? It's significant in terms of the estimated death toll. We, we still lack exact information on the number of people that were on board, but the estimates are between 500 to 750 people. So obviously we're talking about hundreds that are still missing and are presumed dead. And it is very much similar to tragedies that we've had in the central Mediterranean in 2013, off the coast of Lampedusa, 2012 and 2013. The migrants' ultimate destination, Ageliki, was Italy. You know, why are migrants opting for this longer and more dangerous journey? So there are multiple reasons for this. Let me start by stressing that this is not an entirely new route. We have had it in the past, late 90s, early 2000s, but there are multiple reasons why it's resurfacing, so to speak. One has to do with the deterrence and interception policies of Greece. This is one factor. It has pushed people to undertake longer routes, trying to bypass Greece and get directly to Italy. Smugglers tend to shift routes in response to border controls, which inevitably, of course, creates a vicious circle, if you'd like. Border controls adjust, and then smugglers also adjust, and so on. It also has to do a little bit with the cost. Generally, longer and unsafe journeys are cheaper than short and safer ones. So when you hear, for example, that they each paid around 5,000 euros to be on board that vessel, the sum would be twice or triple high, for example, to come in through a shorter route, through a safer vessel, for example, a leisure yacht, or to even fly in. That would be even more expensive. And it also has to do with the destination country. Italy has applied in, in recent years, and especially in recent months, a very harsh policy at sea. But nonetheless, it is still a preferred destination to Greece for two reasons. First and foremost, it has a better geographical location than Greece. It allows migrants to continue their journey north to family and other migrant communities through its now northern route, which is far more accessible and safer than the one that they would have to undertake if stranded in Greece, which would be they would have to cross through the, the Balkan route, which is becoming increasingly hostile to migrants. Second of all, Italy doesn't apply blanket de facto detention which is the situation across most of the border areas right now in Greece. I say de facto because even if it's not detention in name, in principle, we are talking about a restriction in the movement of people. So for all these reasons, Italy is still a preferred destination. But at the same time, depending on the smuggler and the cost of the journey, the route that is preferred, the border controls that are in place on that day, on that week, on that month, we see different routes emerging. This is just the latest case of smugglers packing vessels full of desperate people willing to risk their lives to reach Europe. Can you give us a clear picture of the broader situation that we're seeing in the Mediterranean? So the situation is shifting slightly in recent months. 
largely due to a renewed push from the EU and the member states for externalization of migration management and border controls to third countries like Tunisia. So we're seeing that corridors are increasingly becoming riskier as to points of departure. Libya remains, of course, the worst of the worst, but the situation is increasingly deteriorating also as regards Tunisia. We know from the latest figures that have been released by the International Organization for Migration that the Mediterranean Sea is the deadliest crossing. Last year, 2022, nearly 3,800 people died, mainly from the Middle East and North Africa, and the majority lost their lives in attempted crossings through the Sahara Desert en route to the Mediterranean or in the Mediterranean Sea. And this is the highest number of recorded deaths since 2017 in the Mediterranean. We're seeing an increase in numbers through the West Mediterranean route, so from Senegal and Mauritania, which are used as transit sites, to Spain, the Canary Islands, which again is an old route, but it's picking up again. And of course, the Central Med from Tunisia, Libya to Italy. The situation is deteriorating in terms of not only the loss of life, which of course is the most important one, but also in terms of the pullback policies that some of these countries are applying in partnership, of course, with the EU, which impacts by extension the access to protection the right to asylum, and the very safety of those that are seeking protection. And of course, it also increases, so to speak, the externalization scope of EU member states, which in turn impacts border controls, routes, and journeys across the Mediterranean. Ageliki, where are we seeing most of these migrants coming from, especially the ones that are attempting the route from North Africa across the sea to Italy? You have right now um, a patchwork in contrast to the past where we would have clearer nationalities using the central med. For example, we're now seeing more Syrians using it because, of course, the Turkish passage is closed. We're seeing increasingly Bangladeshis and Pakistanis trying to use the central Mediterranean route, which has not really been, I mean, neither has really been a primary nationality in the figures until recently. And of course, sub-Saharan Africa, which has always been the region from which the majority have been using the central Mediterranean route to migrate. And what's the key driver for a lot of these migrants to make this dangerous journey? You know, the war in Syria, for example, is a clear-cut case. But what about migrants from countries you mentioned, like Bangladesh, Pakistan, or countries in sub-Saharan Africa? I think there is where you see the true complexity of migration and the danger of trying to also box people into specific categories. It's not as simple to say that people are fleeing conflict, which is something, as you rightfully point out, that's clear cut. You can identify there's a civil war, there's a conflict there, and it's simple for us to understand it. But there are also other factors that drive migration. You can have abject poverty coupled with climate change that also impacts by extension access to livelihoods, impacts farming, impacts agriculture, impacts fishery, which in turn impacts labor, which in turn impacts really daily survival. You can have individualized persecution for political reasons, but also for other reasons. You can have the need for family unification, which is increasingly becoming difficult through the legal routes to Europe. So you can have mixed factors as to why are people moving. And I think this is what the European Union is still failing to also address. The mixed migratory flows that are coming in means that we need different and more legal pathways for different categories, so to speak, of people to basically reduce their dependency and reliance on smugglers. 
EU Home Affairs Commissioner Ilva Johansson, she stressed that Europe has a collective moral duty to dismantle the criminal networks that put these desperate people at risk, a reference to the smugglers who facilitate these dangerous journeys. How is Europe working to deal with this problem, and is this too narrow of an approach? I think it is, and I think it's interesting that the commissioner speaks of a moral duty because I'm not sure it is perceived as such by the member states. I think smuggling is, and criminal networks are perceived more as a, as a nuisance that needs to be addressed. I'm a little bit skeptical of the language on values and humanitarianism at the moment by the EU, to be honest. But the fact is that countering smuggling is a priority, but it's not very well done. Smuggling is a business. It relies on the very old business model of demand and supply. Demand, as we've just discussed, will continue. It will not necessarily increase. I would be cautious of claims that argue of a large-scale increase, for example, due to climate change, because as I just said, human movement is far more complex. It cannot be easily reduced to push and pull factors. But we do know that some people will continue to seek to come to Europe, and they will rely on smugglers. Tackling this at the moment, at the EU level, the scope is extremely narrow. It focuses on border controls. It focuses on, on agreements with third countries. But as I, I said, we need legal and safe pathways for both refugees or potential refugees, as well as economic migrants. It is quite simple in terms of solution, but extremely complex at the political level. It will not make smuggling disappear, but it will reduce the demand. It will reduce risky journeys. It will reduce the loss of life. It will facilitate orderly migration, which is what member states want and, and rightfully so. So we know to a large extent what would be one significant solution and one way forward. We're just not heading in that direction. Instead, the focus is on strengthening border controls and policies of interceptions, and both actually fuel smuggling. EU countries like Eliki just reached an agreement on a new migration pact last week, an agreement that obviously still needs to be negotiated with the European Parliament and the European Commission. Do you see this latest tragedy impacting Europe's overall policy on asylum and migration, specifically with regard to this new pact? Frankly, no. I doubt that we will see any positive shift, at least due to events. If anything, it's likely we will see attempts to make the current proposal slightly worse in terms of stricter regulations, limits, and, and clampdowns. The Council is heavily oriented towards border enforcement and externalization. I'm skeptical of how much Parliament will be able to push through the trilogue stage with any significant positive improvements. And we should also keep in mind that there is a general fatigue at EU level with migration. Plus, there is this drive right now to find a solution, really any solution, so long as it's done before we head to EU Parliament elections. And of course, the Hungarian presidency, which is an issue right now that is of concern. So I, I don't think we're going to end up seeing, for example, an EU-wide agreement on search and rescue with explicit guidelines on when should the Coast Guard intervene. Because, I mean, this is a discussion that's already started here in Greece. What constitutes a boat in distress is really, you can have various interpretations. Some would say that a boat packed with 500 people is in distress, poses a danger uh, to life and safety, even if the passengers on board don't think so. So, you know, we need clearer guidelines that would also facilitate the Coast Guard in doing its jobs. We need a discussion on mandatory redistribution within the EU and for frontline countries to know that when they do rescue people, relocation will kick in quickly and effectively. None of these issues are really part of the pact. Relocation is optional, for example, not really mandatory. So 
again, I don't think that this will initiate any positive shifts in the current proposals. Agiliki, thanks for joining us. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you for having me. In other news, Turkish President Erdogan has criticized Greece's arms program and stated his intention to discuss it with the country's next prime minister. During a press conference on a flight back from Azerbaijan, Erdogan stressed his willingness to discuss the subject with New Democracy leader Kyriakos Mitsotakis should he be re-elected as prime minister in the June 25th election. The NATO summit slated for July 11th and 12th in Vilnius may include a discussion on the topic. Mitsotakis and Erdogan were until early this year, not on speaking terms after the latter pledged never to have contact with the Greek premier again. Finally, in response to Greece's growing demographic problem, experts are proposing, among other things, the operation of properly functioning all-day schools and the implementation of alternative models such as neighborhood nannies, support for housing policy, and measures to facilitate the entry into the labor market of couples with children, as well as free and easy access to health care without huge waiting lists and exhausting formalities. All agree that any measures implemented must target the Greek family as a whole and not be limited to vulnerable groups. They also note the need for structural and comprehensive changes that should not only concern the distribution of benefits. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.